So, welcome back to the Sports Bubble. Um, myself and Brenton here, and we're joined with um, a very special guest, um, Miguel Delaney, Chief Football Writer from the, the Independent. Hello, Miguel. Hello, lads. Um, thanks so much for coming on. Like We're both big fans of yours, so sure. we'll try not to fanboy you on this podcast <laughs> and try not to annoy you, but uh, it's pretty cool that you agreed to come on, and we're both delighted. Um, how have you been anyway? How, how have you found following football again in empty stadiums? Uh, it's been a bit odd. I suppose it, the thing is, uh, once a game is good and kind of invo- involving, you kind of get into it and kind of forget a little bit. So I found that, to be honest, I've gone to three games in the flesh so far, and I found that with all of them. Actually, I'm quite lucky in the games I've gone to. So I went to United Spurs, which ended up being a very good game, if, if low quality. City Chelsea, which I thought was brilliant. Yeah. Uh, and obviously decided the title. And then I was at West Ham Chelsea on Wednesday, which was which was a good game again. Had a late, well, late winner and all that. And well, actually, and to be honest, one thing about the the West Ham game, West Ham seemed to have so many officials, or, or maybe it was just an illusion. But <laughs> the, the people that they had in the stands were so loud that it all it, it almost felt like a crowd. <laughs> I think um, Sid Lowe was mentioning that when he was in Spain. That um, I'm not sure what game he was at. I don't know if you heard, but he was talking about a game he was at and. Um, one of the teams scored, and like all of a sudden, there's just like uproar, like massive all over the stadium. People were going mad and cheering, and then players were singing songs of the the home team and singing yeah. chants to the opposing team, which is quite weird. Have you have you had any of that? Have you heard any like chants or anything, or any of the players say anything during the games? There's been none of that yet. No, no. You just kind of notice what the players are shouting at each other and which players are particularly vocal. Yeah. So in Chelsea City, it was it was the goalkeeper Kepa more than anyone. For United, it was Scott McTominay. Um, it was a bit harder to make out of West Ham because we're so the press box is so far away from the pitch, and um, it all becomes a bit um, <laughs> hard to tell. But no, no, no chance yet. I think um, if, if I'd like to hear what apparently Van Dyke's obviously very vocal, and um, Rory Smith was saying that he sort of conducts everything at Liverpool, and you you, you can see that during games. But I'd yeah. like to hear what he's saying. Um, and here and sort of see what he's mouthing back, and it'd be really interesting, I think, if you if you could hear it better, because sometimes you can't hear it on TV, but it's not always picked up. But I enjoyed Henderson telling the line, linesman to fuck off yesterday. Yeah, yeah, um, well. <laughs> yeah, I enjoyed that, and I enjoyed that. Um, Brendan, I think you wanted to jump in there. With... I, I was just going to ask you was um, the the players obviously weren't really listening to Kappa in the West Ham game, were they? Because they they were not organised at all. Uh, well, it was more in the city game. Actually, I did notice it. Uh, yeah. Although, and but the one thing that that um, Kepa just shouts because we're again we're genuinely so far away at West Ham, like you may as well be in a different stadium sometimes. Um, well, it was well close the gap. That's what he shouted a lot. Lines, lines. I mean, I think there's been a bit made of this, but it's it, what they shout isn't particularly um, different from what we'd say in five side. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think that's what you've been hearing. It's just sort. It's just exactly the same. It's just. These are multi-million pound paid players that are world class. Yeah, you know, they're, they're not they're not like chub like me a chubby hurry Irish man trying to run around five side thinking he's brazy. And <laughs> um, <laughs> but obviously you you're doing our dream job. So so you're getting to follow football and, and write about football and obviously talk about football. What got you into sports journalism then? Um. So basically, when I was. <laughs> In school, I was obviously a football nerd, um, and I was basically I was good at English and good at history. Um, and when it came to the CEO CAO form, uh, you used to be Yukas, would you? 
yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So we, 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 we CAO. And I suppose I didn't really know what to pick. So I was kind of picking like de- degrees that I might want to go into. And kind of given all that, given I love football, I like I liked English and history. I thought that um, that uh, journalism would be a good degree to, to do. So it kind of felt like through that basically, to be honest. Uh, and then when I was doing the journalism degree, so obviously I kind of gravitated towards wanting to do sport and everything we did. Well, not sport. To be honest, not sport. It was just football. I didn't really yeah. care about any other sport. Um, <laughs> And then when we, so I was doing it like anytime we'd have a, a, a publication we had to do, or we like, we used to do the local paper for the Liberties area through the degree. Um, I, I would always aim to be doing sport or football. Uh, and then in the final year of the course, uh, we were brought on an open day to the Sunday Tribune. And it was only me and another mate, Owen Murphy, who actually went into showbiz. We were the only two from my, my course that went up to sport. Um, and we're talking to the editor. Uh, he, we just kind of asked him, could we have a bit of experience? He, Philip Lanigan, it was the time, who's now uh, a GA writer with the Mail. But uh, he took down our, my my number, my email, email address. Said he said he remembered my name from the Phil Ball competition, which the Tribune used to do, which is a young writer competition, which apparently, yeah. apparently finished second or third in a few years in a row. Uh-huh. Didn't didn't win it, um, but they remembered my <laughs> name at least, so it was good for that. And then like they they invited me in for two shift two sub sub editing shifts a week. And I kind of went from there. I kind of hung around the Tribune. Ended up kind of being there all the time, doing writing, uh, and that, and that was that. And it kind of evolved from there. And now you're chief football writer for the Independent. So even though you didn't win that award, which sounds like you still sort of a wee bit resentful about there, Miguel. <laughs> <laughs> a bit, a bit of, you've done all right. You've done all right. Um, yeah. Is there like what's it been like for you? Um, obviously, you're. Um, a, a Spanish Irishman or an Irish Spanishman, I don't know which way you would term it. What's it been like for you covering England? Um, it's it, I, I quite enjoy. It. I mean, I suppose the thing, the thing with journalism in that sense is that you go to what the biggest story is, and, and like you're talking about the English national team, obviously. Yeah, yeah, uh, and the English national team are always. I mean, <laughs> I know. A lot of Irish people probably want to dispute this, and there was a lot of debate in the last World Cup about how lucky they were, all the rest of it. But you probably can't deny it at the moment they're one of the strongest international teams in the world. Yeah. And from another perspective, they're full of players who are actually interesting. And this is something I've actually discussed with some of the papers, or sorry, some of the journalists for English papers, like say the Guardian and Telegraph, who were sent to cover Ireland. And they loved it, obviously, up until about 2008. Because we had proper star quality. Obviously, when Keane was there, it was brilliant for them, which is why you saw a lot of Manchester, the Manchester-based journalists doing, in Ireland, doing Ireland. But but now, like they complain, like we've basically got no star quality. So for them, it doesn't. <laughs> well, like in a mix on after game, it doesn't make it interesting for them or for their papers in that sense. Whereas for England, obviously, almost every member of the squad is basically a star. Um, so like from a purely journalistic perspective, regardless of kind of nationality or anything like that. Uh, it's just it's 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 one it's still one of the more interesting angles you can do, and even at every tournament, to be fair, they're always a story. And yeah. even from an Irish perspective, like I mean, like so when I was working for the Tribune, um, or when like I'd be talking for look Irish colleagues like like Dan McDonald and that, they they would w- want to do England as well because they'd also want to cover it from an Irish perspective to maybe filter out some of the uh, <laughs> some of the English angles on it. <laughs> no, it's like. Just on that England team, uh, we're obviously we're not England fans, but remember last I think it was is it is it the anniversary of the Columbia penalty shootout? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So 
we were watching it at home here, myself, my wife, and um, Henderson misses, and Miguel. Like obviously, I'm a Badio fan, so I know what it's like when somebody misses a penalty. I was I was almost howling because I did not want him to be the scapegoat for the English media, not not including you in that. The English media for them to go out. I did not want that because we just lost in Kiev. He was already getting it tough anyway and was never seen as good enough to be Liverpool captain. And he misses his penalty. And I remember going fucking ballistic in our living room thinking someone has to score here and save him because I can't have this. But um, they are such an interesting team. Like It, it would be one to cover, good one to cover <laughs> because of so much is coming through. But you love, yeah. I don't, you, you can't say this obviously because of your job, but you do love to see them implode sometimes. <laughs> I think the French football team would be interesting to follow too. Yeah, well I suppose it's when there's an element of hubris about teams but I have to say that's one thing I found about it actually it's, it's one thing that the job has changed my perspective of people go on about bias and all that or, and or I found that some people get fascinated with who journalists support and all this yeah well by the time you're in the job and have you worked on it you kind of just look at it from a different perspective and it's not that you'd show bias people but when you like someone you cover you kind of want them to do well and like so I, I found that with Pochettino at Spurs um, and I have to say, I find I found it with, with I found it with Soke as well. Like Soke, he's hard not to like. He's 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 great yeah. with us. Like we've had a few kind of uh, not do's with him, but like say when we were in Moscow for the World Cup draw in December 2017, um, they put like the FA made sure we had kind of drinks with Soke and all that, just to kind of uh, make it a bit less formal and all that. Uh, and he and he's he's great to talk to in that regard, and he's a likable, knowledgeable fella. Uh, so from that, and then from that perspective, you kind of what you want these people you like to do well. Well, obvi- well, obviously maintaining on the other side of it uh, a journalistic objectivity. But, but you do you do see it in different terms than that club or that team, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. It, it, w- it would be hard, like to. Now Brent has a question here. Jump in next, but it would it would be hard to. Um, co- it is hard for you obviously to come across as if you're not being biased, and, and we'll talk about. Some of the clubs that have, and even my own sometimes, the dickheads. And, and I've found myself sticking up for you sometimes, Miguel, and, and jumping into the threads you find yourself in on Twitter, which sometimes I'm like, how the fuck have I done this? And sticking up, because like one of my best mates is a Newcastle fan, and I've ended up in a full-scale row with him over something yeah. you've wrote, and <laughs> having to talk about it, you know what I mean? But um, yeah, it must be so, it would be difficult. I think I would find that tough to try and not be biased, because I'm, I'm so bought into Liverpool, and I'd have to... I don't know. Maybe if I get the chance to cover all football, I maybe will. But um, did you want something to ask Miguel there, Brenton? Yeah, I was just going to say about about the England national team. Obviously, do you think it helps covering them that you are watching the Premier League week in, week out, and, and the majority of the England players still remain in England? I know it's slightly changing now with, with Sancho, the sort of the big name. But do you think that's why it's easier because you're seeing them, you know, week in, week out, in probably the best league in the world. I know we're best, but yeah, yeah, probably. Uh, to be fair, I mean, if players went abroad in that sense, particularly if you went to Spain, I don't think it would change it in that regard. Um, and I, or, 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 or Italy, say, even though Syria has kind of feels like it's dropped in status over the past few years. Yeah. But yeah, that definitely helps. And the fact they're part of like the soap opera, and that's what the Premier League is more than anything really at this mm. point. It is yeah. a massive soap opera um, that they kind of <laughs> build up. And I suppose the, the last few days only emphasises. Yeah, I think even last night, Sky were trying to say there's only 20 points in it now. <laughs> <laughs> when when it was, or um, somebody said this, the season starts now or something, wasn't it, after last night? But um, next, yeah. the next season starts now, yeah, sorry. Um, is, was, is there, um, 
obviously you're getting the cover such a great time in football as in the, the football ways maybe not the, the shites going on in the background but is there a player a manager or a team that you haven't didn't get the cover from the path that you wish you could have um it's a good question actually maybe not so much that but when i when i was uh well i think i i got to i got the very tail end of ferguson and i've been yeah. to two champions league finals i mean so for that from that perspective um i may be keen as a player as well given i was such a massive keen zealot growing up and i, I was there i was there i was all, all the home games through the saipan campaign uh so maybe a bit a bit of that so i was i was 18 like say for or no, i was 17 actually for ireland holland uh, and I was at that game, so maybe to cover that as a journalist. But when I was um, w- the Sunday Tribune went bust in January 2011, yeah. and I was I stayed here. Well, sorry, stayed not stayed here. I stayed in Ireland for another year and a bit, uh, but I was always planning to kind of move over to London. Well, I was always planning to move to be honest. And it was basically it was a choice between London or uh, Spain at that point, either Barcelona or Madrid. And I picked London basically because I had. Because I had work offers, basically, so I was, I was guaranteed of employment. And I thought, and as well as that, even though I would have said the Spanish league is better at that, certainly at that point, the English league has much more of an international profile. The fact that it is speaking English helps with kind of media work. So I just thought, for for a freelancer, which is what I was at the time, I thought it would offer much better opportunities. But that's one the one thing I don't I do maybe slightly regret is I didn't go to Spain and I would have been covering. Because at that point, you would have been covering then years of Messi at his peak, Ronaldo at his peak, Barca at their best, and uh, a, a very, very good Madrid. So, so that's one thing. I mean, I saw them in Champions League finals and, and Champions League knockout games, but that's pretty, it's not quite the same as being totally immersed from day to day. So from, from that, that perspective, maybe, there's a, sl- there's a slight regret. You're, um, you're obviously family from Osasuna. Would you be an Osasuna fan? Yeah, so we like I've got a fair few of the jerseys. Um, nice. And one of the uh, Pamplona is actually the city. It's one, it's, yeah. it's one of those clubs where the name of the uh, the name of the club isn't actually a geographical place. It's a Basque word. That means. Oh. Okay. Yeah. Um, although there was actually a bit of debate about Osasuna's uh, identity in that sense, and that some people say they're a Basque club. They would, I think, really though they're a Navarran club, which is separate to Basque, even though it's right beside the area. Um, uh, but um, so w- w- one of the first games they ever went actually they they played Milan in a in a preseason friendly for the anniversary of one of their stadiums. Baggio actually played in that game. Ah, oh, um, they got beaten four 0 As soon as they they had, they had two players from England as well in that team, uh, Jamie Pollock and uh, Robert Ullathorne. But yeah, they're they're our local team. So I remember even like when it was a, when it was really small, like. My family in Spain bought me Osasuna in a, in, as yeah, a Sabudio yeah. team. I had, I had a fair few jerseys and all of that. Yeah, so they, they'd be uh, our local team over there. Um, was Baggio good? Um, I think I think, he, I think he was carrying an injury. It was one of those games where Milan made 11 subs. Yeah. Like it was, that was a really star-studded Milan as well. Like that had everyone. It had the entire defence. Weya, Baggio, Kovicic. <laughs> Uh, it was ridiculous, but, it was, but it's a friendly, so it doesn't really count. Yeah, <laughs> I think if I was to do it, it, it would be it would be bad Baggio and maybe Serie A, you know, in the early nineties because yeah. that's sort of when I was paying more attention to football and like it, I was obsessed with Channel Four and Serie A and and Transworld Sport used to be on before and different things yeah, yeah. and that's sort of where I grew into like adoring Baggio. So 
I think I, that would be it for me. Just to, not even just Badger, but that whole Syria era, because we look back on it now with certain podcasts that are produced, or BT did the the film about it, and it's just all floods back, and you think that was an absolute unbelievable time for football, like going going through that in those early nineties. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I was about what like throughout the nineties. So like I was ten years old. I turned ten in ninety three. So like that that could that, that would have been certainly I was exact same. That was, and I, and I think. It's. I mean, I I often think about this in terms of especially people coming to sport, certain sports late or whatever. Sport is almost like a language in that sense that you need to be immersed in it from a young age, really, to really yeah. get it to, to understand it on an innate level. And of course, it matters then what sort of football or whatever sport you're you're introduced to. So that so you, I think you're t- you're totally right. And like so, I would have grown up like my formative football years would have been all consuming Italian football because I was the same. I was you know I'd um. I'd, I'd watch the the Saturday morning show Gazetta go to go to football train and come back <laughs> watch the watch the big then watch the game on a Sunday after we had our own game uh, yeah completely because they used to show on on network two at the time as well on Monday nights remember <laughs> yeah 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 we should be, be after Euro goals and Eurosport uh, you, yeah, Euro, yes remember Euro goals yeah Euro goals is great I mean I, because they used to use goals from nearly, from all over Europe basically and they used to have the Spanish yeah. league at the time yeah. I remember watching like an old, old the Ajax used to feature on it heavily. Yeah. Obviously, it was what was going through. And then obviously that, not knowing at the time that we we're actually witnessing quite a decent Ajax side and just yeah. thinking, all right, they look all right because I was too yeah. young. Like, if I'd have known then how much of a cult hero Yari Lippmann was going to become, I'd have, I would have invested heavily in some Ajax gear. But um, <laughs> yeah, no, like, I, that's I interesting. Go ahead, this sorry. Chat, this chat is obviously, um, I, I'm too young for this chat. Um, <laughs> I was uh, I was born literally in the Premier League era in '92, so um, yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't have wouldn't have grown up watching that. Spanish football then, ten years later, that, 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 it, felt like, it felt like Spanish football had replaced what Syria was by around the mid 2000s. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because anything that that I didn't, well, that was Premier League football. But anything that wasn't Premier League football that I watched was was obviously Spanish football, and it, it seems to be. That it did just gradually replace it just in those early nineties when when I was obviously yeah. coming into football. No, I was just going to say like one of the questions, Miguel, was like, did you have a, a footballing hero growing up? But you sort of you mentioned you said about Roy Keane who who ruined my life actually as a child. <laughs> so like him and Alex Ferguson, like people say, did you have a fear as a child growing up? Yes, Alex Ferguson and fucking Roy Keane were my fears because they were winning everything. And anytime I looked at the TV, they were like, I'm from Banbridge. Mm. So I my Saturdays were spent at the football club in Banbridge with Dad, and then he'd be in the pub, and you'd be looking at C-Fax or Teletext, and United would be getting beat say by Coventry, and you'd be looking at it, goal to all, goal three two, your Saturday's ruined, and that's the way it went <laughs> through the whole nineties. So the nineties for English English football was terrible for me because it just nothing good happened in my life with, with Liverpool. But um, well, I, I did a piece um in September about you know, basically along the line, Manchester United ruined my life. And more so, all the... So I spoke to fans of a fair few clubs, including Andy Heaton at the Anfield Rap. Oh, yeah, yeah. About, about how, the, like, the Shodden fraud now and how bad, you know, I mean, obviously, they've recovered a little bit since, although I'd still have a lot of questions. But, but I mean, that, that was very much sentiment. Like, every week, United, you know, it was 1-0 to Cantona. Uh, <laughs> like, they were relentless. But, yeah, it probably, it probably was keen for me. Um and particularly, I suppose, when I was a teenager, uh, yeah. I actually, I, I did, I mean, because well, I can remember Italian 90, but 
but I was probably a little bit too young to kind of fully get it in a football sense. Whereas um, the 94 World Cup was the first World Cup that I really, so I was 10 during that. And that was the first World Cup I really completely consumed, like watched every game, had all the books and all that, and kind of knew like every single player. So like, and even now, the kind of the player, like just that you have that element of magic or a kind of imagination about Baggio was one for certain. Uh, Stoichkov as well, Romario. Uh, Adji. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Adji maybe not quite as much for me. I, lo- yeah. I did love Stoichkov and Romario. And by- yeah. But they're kind of, and they're kind of, I suppose, because they're the standouts as you grow up. They're the players you kind of, you identify with as kind of, this is this is the high watermark of football. One of the, our, our Stoichkov memory is for me would be the, the United game in the Champions League. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, I yeah, remember watching that live. Yeah, yeah, it was on. I think it was on ITV up here. Yeah. I just remember being being like sort of, and not really being into the rivalry just yet. You know, because I'm still very young. But just I remember even thinking like, "Well, oh, this is pretty. They're pretty good here." And my dad, obviously, because he's a Liverpool fan, going mental because of what was going on. But just you know, thinking well, this is this is pretty decent here. What I'm seeing, but then not realizing afterwards when I grew up that actually United weren't allowed to play a certain amount of players and all, and the squad was a wee bit weakened. But that Barcelona team were. Were superb. I, th- I think Brenton, you have a question on Chelsea again, just on sort of, well, <laughs> your article yesterday about Kepa and stuff, Miguel, <laughs> and what's been going, what's been going on about at Chelsea. Just so going ahead there, Brenton. Obviously, the, the the whole Kepa thing has been publicised quite a lot now, and I know you mentioned in your article that <laughs> Lampard probably, if he had a choice, he would he would sell him on. But just with the the whole situation and the the market at the minute. Um, that's obviously not going to happen. Maybe a loan deal, I, I know you mentioned as well, but do you think it's something, it's sort of a sticking point that the Chelsea fans should be worried about? Uh, because obviously Caballero was not, not up to the standard as well at the minute. Yeah, maybe a little. Although to be honest, I think the biggest issue with um, Chelsea is while Klopp and Guardiola are in this league, I can't see any other manager beating the title. And I think Chelsea have the capability to match Liverpool and City on resources, obviously. But, I mean, he's, he's obviously got some qualities, Lampard. But I still have my doubts about him. Uh, and I just I don't, from what I've seen so far, like, I know this is going on very limited evidence, but I'd, I'd actually think there's more to Arteta as a potential top manager than there is to Lampard. Oh, that's really interesting, yeah. 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 And, but, but, I mean, to be honest, I think if any, if any, if any of the other clubs want to... Uh, want to challenge Klopp or and Pep, I think they've got to get posh. Yeah. I think it's absolutely madness. I, I, it, when you actually stand back, it is quite incredible that three of the biggest clubs in England, and thereby the three, three clubs in Europe, Arsenal, United and Chelsea, are essentially going on punts uh, of these kind of popular players. who may, They may well be brilliant managers, but we don't know that. There's no kind of track record to go off. So they are really, they might be, they might be kind of educated punts, but they're still punts. And they're going with that when they could go out and hire one of the best managers in the world. It's all, it's scandalous that he hasn't been hired by anyone. I suppose a little bit of that is circumstantial because um, of COVID and all that, and people now. Yeah, kind well, of, yeah. But yeah, it is incredible. These great managers are kind of basically waiting around. And and even just on pots, like every every game goes past at Spurs, you just it just looks like an even worse decision. I know. Well. I'll, when you stand back, I was thinking like I'm probably going to do a piece in this next week. <laughs> but when you stand back, it's an indictment of the way the club is run in a football sense. If you, I mean, basically, that club is a string of failed managers, really. 
and Poch was the one, the single one they got right. And it, like he, he basically trans, he, he like he did really transform the outlook of the club. I mean, not obviously not to the degree Ferguson did with United or Klopp did now with Liverpool, but it, it was along the same lines. And then when it came to backing him and allowing him the sort of change that Ferguson was repeatedly allowed at United and the Klopp will, you'll imagine, be allowed at Liverpool, they bottled it basically and took the kind of the cheaper option, which was getting rid of the manager rather than allowing the manager to get rid of some of the players. Yeah. And now, and now they have Mourinho, who I know you said last night you think he should go into international management. Well, I, I do think that, but I could I could still see him ending up with someone like PSG for a year or two, messing about. Just because... I don't think I don't think PSG would want them. Do you not? Everything you hear now, they because PSG. If you look at what PSG are as well, mm-hmm. that, that club is all about branding now. I mean, it's it's obviously it's obviously quite a good. It's a proper football setup there. Well, yeah. I mean, part of their image is the show, all this Air Jordan stuff, and there's absolutely no way a club like PSG wants to appoint a manager who plays. Reactive football. They, oh, they 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 look. They're they're now looking for managers who play attacking football because they realise this is what it's about and this is important to the brand. And, and, and like you don't need Mourinho's football for like nineteen of ninety nine percent of their games because they're they're going to be better than the opposition. That's not just in France, but that's in Europe too. So yeah. I, I I'd be I'd be stunned if he ever ended up a PSG. I think it would it would have to be a case if they go another three four years of the Champions League and they're absolutely desperate. Yeah, that that was probably if they. Uh, making my thinking there that they'll be desperate for a Champions League and maybe he would be the man to maybe do it. But I, he he has like it's it's so weird. It's like it's almost like all the powers have been sucked out of him. And it's like it's like every or it's like it's because football has evolved and he's just you like when he was coming through, and I'm sure you were on this. You came onto the scene then when he came back at Chelsea and stuff and different things. And he was so like even as a non Liverpool fan and he was so electric at times. Yeah. It's just gone. Yeah, that, but, uh, but if you look, this is a trend with a lot of managers, particularly managers who have a huge sudden influence. And Mourinho did, because he had to basically characterise and set a kind of an era of football. And I think a lot of coaches would credit it as some of his work in kind of periodization and all this sort of stuff, and even kind of defensive structure as kind of being really influential on football. But when you have that impact... If we, I mean, football moves in cycles in that way, particularly tactical cycles. There's always responses to what you see. Yeah. And when you have that impact, and then there's a response to you, I, I think you see this with Lama. I think this has happened with Benitez as well, and it certainly happened with Wenger. They, they try to respond to that response, but there's almost an element of pride about it. Like they, they want to still prove that their methods work, and that means they don't adapt to what happens. And I, obviously, Ferguson's great skill in that regard was he always adapted to no matter no matter what. Like it's actually incredible, really. He did it to a, a greater degree than any other manager. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Pep has actually adapted a little bit, you'd have to say, because he's incorporated some kind of the German speed and pressing into his own system. But Mourinho, he hasn't like. I think Ken did a piece in this about uh, a few years ago. But if you look at the two major tactical developments since since Inter Milan won the well, not quite since Inter Milan won the Champions League, but really since since Mourinho left Chelsea in 2007 and basically. Spain dominated the world. Guardiola went in at Barcelona. So the two the two major tactical revolutions at that time have basically been the growth of possession again and the growth of pressing. And both mm-hmm. of them have like completely passed Mourinho by, and he doesn't really incorporate anything to any kind of modern level. Yeah. Yeah. But, no, that's spot on. 
Do you think uh, just on um, on Spurs there, and Mourinho? Do you know the way you were saying about Pochettino and and they bottled it with you know having to spend money, give him money, and and give him license to let players go? Do I think Daniel Levy should have known that Mourinho of all people would come in and and demand all these signings from what he'd seen? You know, Mourinho literally just do it at United before, just always well, wanting more and more. Well, this is the big question, and I suppose uh, I think from what you hear, Levy was struck by what a star name Mourinho was and that this was good for Tottenham's profile and also I think what's become very evident in all these things especially given it Mourinho is very persuasive and very impressive in the initial discussions to bring him in uh, I think from everything you hear he puts together brilliant um, dossiers in terms of what he'll do with the team and from what I gather as well with the initial from the initial discussions with Levy he told them that this team is almost is, that almost has enough to challenge for a title. <laughs> I think uh, I, I, I doubt he believes that now. <laughs> I don't even think they believe it. Eric Dyer's cutting mullets in his hair. He's not thinking about winning anything. <laughs> you know what I mean? Do you see his hair? He's like chocolate ale running around last night. Yeah. Um, That's not obviously. That, like, it's isn't that to convince them that? Because surely you know. Pochettino was was always in his ear about this team needs more and more and, and how far he had brought them yeah. up to that point. He, he, he maybe only needed a, a little more and basically for Mourinho to come in and sort of try and undercut that. And now, he, you know, you know in the summer he's going to go and say, we, we basically need a rebuild. Yeah, this is it. I, this is the major issue. I mean, the problems with Posh, weren't really, they weren't really problems with Posh. Per se. I think that was just the natural evolution of a team. And it's something that Ferguson used to always speak about that any team only has a three or four year cycle. After that, you need to make a big change to kind of refresh it and spark a bit of energy. And that's what Spurs needed. I mean, that team had been together five years really by um, by the time by the time of the Champions League final. So that, yeah. that, like, and Poch needed severe changes. But like kind of the economics of Spurs meant that was always going to be difficult. And even if you look at it. Because of Levy's approach to sales, it meant it was it was even difficult for Poch to get players out, and he had players hanging around that he didn't necessarily want, um, and it just put it didn't it just kind of perpetuated this sense this sense of stagnation. Now, uh, but then the thing is, I suppose I think it could have been I don't I don't think it was the correct decision to get rid of Poch, but it could have worked had they got in a better, more modern manager, basically. Nagel's man, maybe from yeah, yeah. But instead, like I, I, I do think that squad is actually good enough with the right manager to challenge. To be honest, I think Mourinho is right there, but I just don't think his his methods are right to challenge anymore. Yeah, yeah, spot on. I think that Spurs team. Uh, we have an Arsenal fan that's usually on the podcast, and he obviously absolutely rinses Spurs any chance he gets. But I think that Spurs team is much better than a lot of us would give them credit for, just because of. It's that Mourinho thing again. He takes it away. You know, he yeah. always takes it on to himself. But um, the two managers, obviously, that are at the top of their game, so to speak, uh, were obviously up against each other last night. And you had an article last night on the Independent, which I thought was brilliant. And you're talking about Cheers. the slim margins um, between the two teams. And, and we were talking, myself and Brent were talking about this before I came on. It I thought it was really interesting last night that we were hoofed by Man yeah. City. Um, not necessarily like as a big oh we're going to get them back next year but it sort of tees it up next year as you were saying these two teams have gone after each other for two seasons in a row Pep might be away at the end of next season so next season it's going to be like a crescendo yeah I just wondering do you think they'll go after each other again next season or can you see one of them pulling away 
Uh, I think it'll be tight again next year. I think there's going to be a big response from City, but some of that response might obviously be coloured by what happens with this uh, ban, potential Champions League ban, whether it's upheld by Cass uh, and whether that affects their spending power. But as the late, the last I heard was they want to go big on a centre half, um, and they'd like a left back and a winger, so they do plan to spend. Um, and I think there'll be a bit of drive about City again. Uh, see, I think I think it will be the two of them tight in another in another good race. What What was it like for you covering last season's title challenge? Uh, I mean, it was kind of an it was a level of fo- a level of football. It's quite weird, actually. Even though it was both the best title race and and in some ways the worst title race you could have, because the problem was they were both so good, there wasn't that much drama in it. I mean, when you associate classic title races, the past, uh, and I haven't, I haven't, bar that, I haven't really covered the great one while I've lived in England. Um, but the, the the real beauty of them was always basically one team suddenly drops points next week, and the next week there's another, there's another slip. So, so it was almost like the, the perfection of these teams was a bit too much of a problem because there was the sense every week that it that they'd absolutely win every game, and it did take away from some of the drama, even though the quality of the title race was actually exceptional. I I, um, I don't think I could go through another title race like that. <laughs> it, it was it was it, it was so like it was just absolutely demanding, and I'm only a fan watching from home. My my dad goes to the games. I I couldn't go to the games, so I was only watching from home. But it was so like pulsating, and every yeah. you're watching City's game, then you're watching our game, then you blah blah blah, and it was so it was unbelievable. To look back at it now, and and whatever, but it was just and I I've said about this before. I actually wrote about it on a on a blog. We have that when we went uh, in front against Wolves, and Man City went behind against Brighton. I've never experienced anything like that. It, yeah. was like an out-of-body, it was like an out-of-body experience. Like, I, I, I whole, was at the like, Brighton game that day, yeah. You were at the Brighton It was like, I didn't know what to do. I was in my dad's living room, and we, we both didn't know how to react. And we were like, this is going to happen, this is going to happen. And then obviously City went on and did what City do. But in terms of football, it was so yeah. um, unbelievable to look back at it. Like, and I really hope we do go after each other again next year, and then it comes a massive crescendo. I, I suppose the only thing about that is, it was, it was amplified last year by the fact that Liverpool were still waiting. So it yeah. wouldn't be quite the same degree of tension obviously there'll be tension but yeah. it wouldn't have the same historical weight if they did go at it again I think the only way last year could be repeated would be now I think this is unlike, unlikely because Solskjaer is going to be in charge if it was Liverpool and United going for a title and it meant Liverpool maybe getting 20 or 21 or United getting 21 or something that 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 I think that's the only way it could match the tension yeah. of last season I, I, I I couldn't sit through a season. I couldn't. I couldn't sit through a season chasing United. I couldn't do it. 2009 was quite like that. Oh, it was uh, fucking... And I've cursed so much in this podcast. Macheda pops out of nowhere. Like, what the... F- like, fuck me. Against Aston Villa and scores that unbelievable goal. And you'd Rafa Fax and all this here. And Liverpool yeah, away yeah. to Portsmouth winning last minute. That was that was rough too. But um, obviously, it's been a great season for us. I, I, I think... If City keep doing the way they're going, if Kevin De Bruyne keeps playing the way he's playing, they're going to be unstoppable. I think maybe Bayern Munich will be the team that could maybe go after them in the Champions League this year. Yeah. Um, well, what, the only, the only thing with Bayern is the massive break. Yeah. Yeah, that is true, actually. They're, they're finished tomorrow night, don't they, in the cup final? Yeah. Um, what do you make on these? Um, they're just rumours, um, but these on these Thiago takes, because I know you, you did a piece with them in February. Um 
and he was talking about obviously like how much he. I was reading it again the day about how he's very intelligent, like he's and he's very deep thinker. He sort of comes across as and like he even though he's talking about his past and stuff and how people like he doesn't look at names. He looks at how people move, which was like a fascinating yeah. insight. Yeah. You know, so you're probably finding it yourself. You find sometimes you're interviewing a footballer, it's just the the bog standard answers. Whereas that you seem to get a lot out of him there. And I wonder what you think of the links with Liverpool and, and whether that would be like a, a, a brilliant move by them or, or I don't know, what what do you think of it? Well, first of all, Thiago, he's one of those players that, um, and you find just a few of them. I, I think when you ask them general questions or like what you think of this, they're not that arsed. When yeah. you put them in a game situation and give them something they can clearly visualise or what works particularly well, if you show a player a clip of something he's done and ask them to talk you through it, then they get really kind of energized by it and start to enjoy it because they're talking about what they kind of know and what they kind of feel for. Uh, as regards to the Liverpool link, so today people within Liverpool were strenuously denying it, saying there's nothing in it. Yeah. But uh, from I do know a few people who quote Thiago from the interview, and they they weren't completely shutting it down. So I say I say there's something there, but I can't see it happening. No, I got like, and I'm one of these like. We've won the league. We won the Champions League last year. This is the best Liverpool team I've seen in my lifetime. Uh, I, I don't really. If we're not going to sign Thiago, I, I'm not one of these ones that's going to like start crying or gurning. I'm not. I'm not a knobhead. Like you know what I mean. I, I, yeah. I quite. I quite like the young players that are coming through as well at Liverpool. And I, I think Naby Keita. I would still give him another chance. I'm still not sold on, on on getting rid of him yet. I still want to see what he can do. But it was interesting that it hasn't been debunked. You know, it usually is just sort of like, no, it's gone dusted. But they're leaving it out there. But I, I can't see it myself. I mean, if they do get it, hopefully they give him Lovren's number and hoof Lovren onto the moon. But um, yeah, I think <laughs> I think uh, I think we're going to talk about the top. Brent wants to ask you about the top four and, and that race. Yeah, yeah. Enough, enough about that sort of nonsense at the top of the table. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, obviously Liverpool and, and Man City are they seem to be, you know, stretching even further and further away. And from what you know, we hear you saying there about Man City, a winger and a left back, um, doesn't give the rest of us much hope. Do you think with those sort of managers in charge at Chelsea, United, and, and Arsenal that they're gonna drop further into the pack? We've we've already seen it with I know Sheffield United and, and Wolves particularly have been very good this season, but. Do you think there's going to be even more separation with a top two now and then the rest sort of underneath that? Or, or what way do you think that's going to go? The, the only thing I'd say is I think Chelsea and United still have the financial clout. I mean, this is obviously such a big factor in football now. And some have written about a fair bit where yeah. kind of money speaks to a greater degree than ever before. I think Chelsea and United have the financial clout to insulate them, themselves a bit more. But I do think there actually is a danger now that the big six could become a big four. Because I, I think because of the, because of the economics... I think Arsenal and, and Spurs are in danger of dropping away a bit. Okay. So it could almost be a tiered big six in this thing. I think Liverpool and City at the top, Chelsea United then, and then Spurs Arsenal. I, I'd quite like to see Wolves get the Champions League this year. Yeah. Um, and they might. They've got a big enough squad. I yeah. They'll probably be short. And it's, it's also helped that basically, like if this was a normal season, they would have been kind of navigating the Thursday-Sunday schedule now with the Europa League. Yeah. Whereas now they can forget about the Europa League until August. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm a big fan of Raul Jimenez. Yeah, yeah. He's um, um, We've got a couple of questions, obviously, as well, from some of our listeners. And thanks so much for giving us your time no on a Friday night, Miguel. Um, 
before we get into that, I just want to I want to talk about this because you've been very um, vocal on this and at the front of it, and and I've obviously been in behind that. I, I agree hundred percent on sport washing. It's like the it's like the full bone plague now that that we have in uh, in football and and even in sport. Like I, I think people. When they think about sport washing, people that I would chat to, they think of Man City and PSG, Grand Prix in Qatar, uh, Grand Prix in Abu Dhabi, and fights in Saudi Arabia. But you forget about like the Argentinian World Cup. They forget mm. about the the, the uh, Lions Tour in South Africa. But it sort of has come back to head now because Newcastle uh, looks like it's going to get done unless I've missed something. But um, see, when something a topic like this in sport washing, do you find it? Uh, how do you find um, writing about it and getting stuck into it? Is it something that you just grab onto as opposed to actually talking about the actual action? Is this something where you just throw fire in behind and you get very passionate about it? Is it easy for you to do that? Um, I think the more you get into it and the more you realise how important it is, the easier it gets to actually write about it. And you kind of, you kind of realise the value of it. Um, I mean, because when you mentioned kind of going through all the kind of cases, sports washing there, it's an interesting one because, really, the city thing wasn't written about enough by any yeah. of us for years, and I think, I think there was almost a bit of naivety about it. And it's probably there was an element to this maybe with the, with the purchase itself. But it, like, it's, Abu Dhabi managed to basically I'm not, I don't want to say disguise, but it was seen as kind of just this fairly benign enterprise that they were just kind of here were these you know here was this rich man from the Middle East. Uh, um, speaking in general terms the kind of general perception I mean that bought this club, pumped money in, revitalised them and all the rest of it and like it, it, there wasn't too many questions asked of it and it was only really to be honest I think when Nick McGeehan who used to work for Human Rights Watch started to like, saying, it was, it was, he, he, was, he started to write about it and kind of point out, hang on a second, we have to talk about Abu Dhabi here and yeah. Yeah. The, the links from first of all Abu Dhabi as an emirate and how it's governed uh, and also its approach in terms of policies in terms of how it uses sport and then of course the links between the actual state and Manchester City and once you start looking into that then you realise this really shouldn't be kind of waved away as some just kind of benign rich man's play thing this is, this is a political operation and then you get into the bigger questions obviously and it, I mean, if if you look at it in terms of kind of the idea of sports washing being to for a state or an emirate or whatever wants to cut, I mean, the real goal is to integrate themselves as deeply as possible into the West and give a positive general perception of themselves as people who are good to do business with. It's worked yeah. spectacularly. They've they've got. I mean, Abu Dhabi now has a construction empire in Manchester uh, around the club. Um, and you see Abu Dhabi branding everywhere. There's kind of huge links between Manchester Airport and Abu Dhabi. So from that perspective, against the minimal criticism they've received, it's worked very well. But one flip side is that everyone's a bit more attuned to Saudi Arabia's purchase of Newcastle. Uh, and obviously, I think there's, there are graver questions about Saudi Arabia and the rise of Abu Dhabi as well. Yeah, I found it as well, like, because I, I lived in Liverpool. I was at uni there from 2008. And you did notice a change in Manchester, and then when it's been over recently, like the development in it. And up and like 
as you said, we didn't question it enough. People didn't question it enough and just sort of thought, oh, what's going on here? Manchester United, Manchester as a city is just exploding here with all this rise. But it, when you look into it and when you open your eyes a little bit and wake up, you do see all the money's been funneled in. And and obviously, Twitter wasn't as massive then, so you, you're not going to get as much reaction. But I thought it was, I was, I don't know if surprise or shock's the right term here because I don't know how I'd feel it was my club, but some of the way the Newcastle fans have been trying to phrase it, I don't care as long as my club wins. And I get tribalism and I get supporting your club, but I'd like to think they would maybe take a step back and think maybe this, it might be the Mike Ashley thing, but maybe this is this is really wrong here. And I know, obviously, because as I said before, I'd have, I've ended up in some of your threads arguing with dickheads all over social media because of this, but I've just, it is, it really is really disheartening what's going on. And they're going to be a massive superpower in Newcastle if this happens. Um, and one of the interesting things, really, like, you would think they would set this up, the the owner, um, what do you call that, when the owners have to pass? The uh, the owner's director's test. Yeah. It's no, longer, would... it's no longer fitting proper persons. Yeah. It's now <laughs> directors. You would, you would think they would have something set up that this would be questioned. Well, there's no morality clause, clause which is the main issue. Um, I mean, there are, to be honest, if you wanted to very strictly interpret the Premier League's own regulations, this could be blocked. And we don't know, maybe, I mean, I have to say, in April, I was 99.9% certain this deal would go through. As it is, I'm probably about 51, 49 that it'll go through. I think there's a decent chance that it won't, uh, but we don't know. But I think with the existing rules as they are, there is sufficient foundation that could be rejected. Uh, If they had a morality clause, I think it would be certainly rejected. But of course, a morality clause would require... Um, 14 of the Premier League uh, shareholders of the 20 the clubs or, people, or whoever represents the clubs to vote in favour of, of some sort of morality clause and that's probably not, not in people's interest because it's mostly businessmen involved and businessmen want to uh, sell to the highest bidder Yeah And is that is that because you know the way you were so certain in, in April and now you're not is that is there somebody within the Premier League who who's pushing it more now? That you know the fact that you say that um, if you look at the if you look at the laws, it could be denied. Is there somebody within the Premier League who who's being active about that and pushing that forward, or what way is it working? Well, I think they are. To be fair, they are very attuned to the human rights criticism, uh, particularly from Jamal Khashoggi's uh, widow, yeah. uh, and also on the other side, this. I, I mean, it, it kind of speaks volumes that uh, intellectual property rights issue is more important to the deal going through than human rights but this is a massive headache for the premier league the whole yeah. the whole this whole issue of saudi arabia have well i mean this pirate station operating from saudi arabia uh, with what seems minimal uh, you know cracking down on it while uh, and you know, basically siphoning off being sports coverage when B and Sport are one of the Premier League's major partners. And it's, I, I, that is a huge headache for the Premier League, especially because what the Premier League is now, more than anything else, uh, as, a, as a body, I mean, it's essentially it's a media rights-selling company. That's what it's been usually successful at. Like that's, it, it's grown to, to exponentially over the years through that. Um, and it's obviously been, through that, it's obviously been very strong issues like piracy. Whereas sanctioning this deal really threatens that reputation and really 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 will it could create some very awkward negotiations in future it's yeah. it's 
it's so fun. It, not that it's so funny, but the the types of the the piracy, the TV money has brought it to head. Whereas when this was coming through and it was being announced, and we're talking about the human rights, I'm not you obviously had the Premier League run to it, but other people maybe were were sort of not mentioning it. But now that it's the talk of well, you're actually you're going to lose TV rights and money here and, and whatever. And now all of a sudden it's like right, we need to clamp down on this. Yeah, do, do you know what I mean? That's that sort of the bit that sort of a wee bit wrangles me. Whereas I, I would have liked everyone being on at the start and be like, no, hang on, no, hang on, this this is just nonsense. Not even not even accept the like the the um a meeting or whatever. Just be like, no, this this cannot happen. But um, it, it, like football is in a real weird place because we've had Messi and we've Ronaldo and obviously we've Mbappe coming through and other things and teams doing this. Guardiola, Klopp, different managers across. But then you have really weird transfer dealings and teams getting banned. And I just wanted to touch on it. I don't like the Barcelona and Juventus deal with Pjanic and Arthur. That seems a bit weird. Well, from every, I mean, you've got to be careful what I say legally here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. It will, it will, it will, it will essentially allow both clubs to pass. I mean, the, the way it was put to me is it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a deal that works for both from a football perspective. But also, it means they both have a positive on the on the balance sheet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, before the next before <laughs> before the next FFP round. Yeah, um, I read that article in Forbes. Oh, what's her name? The journalist. She wrote it. I can't remember her name. She worked to cover Serie A, and she wrote that and said it'll, it'll allow both teams to have a positive. And I was like, how, how is this not glaring in front of everyone here? How is that, how are people not picking up on this more and saying, hang on, what this stinks a wee bit? But um, you can't say that, Miguel. I'll say that because no one's going to sue me. Like I have no money, and I'm not. I'm, nobody knows me, so I don't care. Um, but with another, we'll move on. Something more lighter. I think with another <laughs> questions from some of our listeners there, Bretton, have you one? Um, yes, from a United fan, basically. Um, the the whole sort of director of football. Um, debate that that has been going on for for a couple of years now just with the the signings recently at united being successful compared to what the previous managers have had is is solchar now kind of the i know he's a manager but is he the the director of football that that united have been looking for and that woodward now doesn't need to actually appoint one um from talking to people within the game who have worked in these roles at successful clubs, they, they would think that is not the most advisable move from United. <laughs> uh, and United have been a bit too reactive in this regard. Uh, I, from what, from everything you hear, it looks like the whole director of football thing has gone dead. He's, he's uh, that Solskjaer has been entrusted with a great, greater power. Uh, I think that's a decision they could come to regret. And I think within a few years, we might be back around in the same issue. But, but who knows? I mean, the, the last. I, I don't particularly rate Solskjaer as a manager. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, I, and I think an element of this is, I said this earlier, I think there's a bit of this with Lampard as well. When we're at a club like United of the spending power they do, they're going to have a, a, a certain threshold, a critical mass of player quality, which means they're going to win the majority of their games. And I think that is part of what's happening now. Um, but is it, I think even if Solskjaer makes pro- progress in that regard, I think there'll still be a considerable difference between them and City and Liverpool as they are. So I think this could be an issue we revisit in the next few years. Um, well, I've been banging that drum since he was appointed. Um, and it always looks harsh if you don't support United, but I just didn't see it. And I was of the opinion that they should have got, they should have went and got Pochettino last season. That, And then they, you would fear them again. 
Yeah. Um, especially <laughs> now, if you took over now with Greenwood, Martial, Rashford, and then that midfield of Fernandez, Pogba, Maddox, McTominay, you know, they're they're on paper they're a good side. Yeah, completely. Yeah, and 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 that's exactly it. If, if I mean, if Poch came into United, it would just immediately change the perception of the team. Yeah. They'd automatically go, <clears throat> maybe not next season, in the, like a, a three-way title race, but they'd automatically, I think, elevate leaps ahead of everyone else. Yeah. Even if you don't add any players in yet, just keep Pogba, obviously, or whatever, and, and you add Poch in, you just think, wow, that's, you know, because he just has that about him. And Have you ever, have you interviewed Poch before? Yeah, yeah, we spent a lot of time around, because I've been around Spurs a lot. Yeah, he, like, I think he's probably going to be a colder fish than people often think but he's got that kind of he's got that charisma about him um and kind of that carries a room in that way and he's, he is an impressive figure and you can you can see I, I think he actually his his relationship with players isn't as warm as a lot of people would think yeah um because there is a hard edge to him but that's that that is whatever it is it very much works and you can see that players are drawn to him and have that connection with him the other thing really was about um, Pogba, um, and that, I suppose, does does link into this whole Solskjaer thing. Um, the argument being that, I suppose, Solskjaer has now brought in, whether it's Solskjaer or not, but he's brought in Fernandes and, and um, Maguire, who, who've been relatively successful. And it looks now, uh, you know, from what we've seen, that um, Pogba is now verging on re-signing again. Um, do you think that's down to Solskjaer or is it just the the current climate at United and everything is sort of rosy in the garden right now? I think that's I think that's mostly down to Madrid and having much money. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, I think he knows that it was both, not, not, neither of the Spanish clubs can spend too much. They've been particularly affected by COVID, um, and Florentino. Well, Zidane is a massive fan of Pogba. Florentino Perez has always a bit more, been a bit more restrained on him and I think the message has got through that Madrid don't have the money to sign him anytime soon particularly given the, the, what United would demand so yeah. uh, I think that's the main reason for it um, Miguel one of the questions we got from a, a listener um, who's also a big fan of yours he wanted to know um, I've got two questions here and I'll ask this one first um, he wanted to know have you ever um, had an interview that's been difficult you don't have to mention names if you don't want to and have you also had one who surprised you and been an absolute delight um, it's always, this is always a difficult one actually because <laughs> most interviews generally go the, it's hard to say um, that's actually one I have to think about okay um well, are you looking forward to potentially next year following and interviewing Marcelo Bielsa? So Bielsa doesn't give interviews. He, um, ah, so he doesn't, he, right? So, so all he does is basically, and Guardiola is a bit the same in this. He'll he'll do press conferences, and he can he'll, he you can have a like Bielsa will yeah. have as long as you like your press conference, but it won't be um um it it won't It'll be, a be down. yeah. It won't be a one-on-one. As an interview, this isn't so much about the interview, but I, I once had to talk to a, I better not say because it'd be too, it might be too easy to identify either. A former player, shall we say? Okay. Who has played in the World Cup, and he was proven a little bit difficult to track down. And I rang his 
business that at the time his family was involved in. And <laughs> it was his wife picked up the phone. I asked, was the player there? And she went on a tirade about, no, and if you, if you, t- if you, if you tell him, you can tell him from his wife to fuck off back to that young one. Or something along those lines. <laughs> that, was was, that was when I was at the Tribune. That, that, that stands out as a memory. <laughs> yeah, that 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 would stand out as a memory. That that's up there with the um, you're on the forty two IE with Gavin Cooney, and the um, the Seaman story. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh my poor David Seaman. I I was listening to that last week again, and I was laughing my bollocks off at like I, I, could, I don't know if you know this, Brenton, but um, Miguel, I'll let you tell it quickly there, so because I'd ruin it if I tried to tell well, it. Well, but, but yeah, I, I wasn't actually there for this. So this was yeah. I was a teenager. This was this was ninety eight. I oh, know it was 2002, sorry. 2002. Um, and obviously, I think there'd been a bit of tension between Seaman and some of the some of the uh, English press back at the time. And he'd been a bit difficult in mix zones or something like that. Anyway, when Seaman was coming out after they got beaten by Brazil, obviously the, he got done by Ronaldinho for the free kick. Uh, as he came out, one particular journalist starts booing him in the mix zone. <laughs> Booing Stephen, incredible. It's funny enough. Shortly after I did that thing with um, with uh, Gavin, so that would have been early April, I think. Yeah. I actually spoke to Stephen a few a few weeks later. For, I'd never interviewed him before, but we were doing a big thing in Euro '96, so I spoke to Stephen for that, and he was really nice. So I felt all the worse for it. <laughs> I was so like, because Seaman's, he's not really a, a polarizing uh, character or whatever, you know, he's sort of just, it's David Seaman, you know, he, I don't really know anyone that could not like him, but um, when I heard that, and even you were telling it back again, I, I couldn't believe it, I just had, a, I don't know who it was, no, I don't know who it was, just had this image of a journalist just booing him, it's like, a, it's like something out of The Simpsons. The journalist has now retired, so. Yeah, I know, you, I know, I know you said that, like, I, I can imagine who I think it was, but just, but just like something, it's just booing him as he walks past, and. That's the type of shit house you behavior. This particular journalist, he used he used to be quite entertaining because he, he he did he didn't care and he'd be he'd be similar in press conferences and ask what I know I know a few press officers used to roll their eyes when he turned up. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's the type of shit house I can get involved in though. You know what I mean? Like I, that's why I love Simeone and Atletico Madrid. I love when they're like being shit houses. I just, yeah. I just buy into it, like and like when he grabbed his balls. Remember that game where he grabbed his balls to the crowd yeah. and all. I was like, yes, Diego. Um, but um, yeah, I think Brenton has another question before we finish up here. Yeah, the other quick one is um, obviously with, with the amount of big games you've been at. What is your favorite, or what's what's been the best to cover? Um, so, so I was not allowed to put in Ireland Holland because I was not working at that. Yeah. Uh, from a personal perspective, then the obvious one is the 2010 World Cup final. Uh, I was working for the also I was working for the Sunday Tribune at the time, and that game the finals are always on a Sunday, so it meant I didn't have to write live in that game. So basically, just sitting on my seat, and I wouldn't have to write for another week. Yeah. Uh, so I mean, that, that, and I, that was, that was, it wasn't just kind of Spain winning the World Cup, one of my countries, but yeah. it was my first World Cup final as well. Uh, as then as a spectacle, I'd say uh, the 2011 Champions League final because I think that's the best performance I've ever seen by any team I've been at and it was one of those occasions where you're kind of like right this is Messi and this Barcelona at their absolute peak so this is a privilege to be at um, and then along the similar lines um, this isn't the fact that Barcelona are involved or only coincidental but just as an event probably being at that the Barca PSG 6-1 oh yeah yeah, yeah. and I, I know like, so I was at Anfield for the 4-0 as well and that was incredible. 
but the only the only the only the only thing about that was that um by that point we'd obviously get a string of these massive comebacks in Europe. So even though it was obviously an amazing moment that that an amazing game to be at at Liverpool Barcelona had say I not been at the, the PSG six one a few years earlier or two years earlier and had that not become a trend in European football, I, I probably would have had kind of the Liverpool game ahead of that. But as it was, because the Barca game became first, 6-1, and it seemed yeah. so impossible at the time, I'd, I'd have that ahead of it. It's almost the game that broke the Champions League because it's just been chaos I know, nearly yeah. ever since. Yeah, the um, Roma yeah, one completely. as well. In fact, the Roma one, yeah. yeah. It's, something, it's something that's going to be denied to us now this season. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I quite like the idea of this little mini Champions League knockout. But yeah. We, we, I think we, we'll miss a little bit those two-legged ties. Yeah. No, I agree with that. Like, um, it's, have you been to La Bombonera? Because one of our old uh, podcasters, you actually asked that question about um, your favourite interviewer or the most difficult one. He was there for Baca v River. And anytime anybody mentions an atmosphere or a crowd, he just says, well, I was at La Bombonera for River, Baca v River. Even though you're not allowed River fans in, obviously, but he just said it was yeah. just... Uh, like the whole, He said, I think Baca scored first. And he just said, like, he was in the air, but he was moving back and forward because people were going back and forth. He said it was yeah, just a surreal yeah. moment. Like, um, it's obviously on every football fan's list. Like, I'd quite like to get to a, a Stadio del Alpi, maybe, for a big, a big story. Or not the Stadio del Alpi, sorry. Um, the, what do you call that? The, what do you call Napoli's ground again? Yeah, the... the um, oh, it's, uh, he's got actually gone by his Gennaro. Some, no. Some it's, pa- saying something. Yeah, yeah. Everyone will know it. Everyone will know it. I've, I've been wanna, there twice and I've gone blank on it. <laughs> um, I want to get to there. But, um, San Paoli. San Paoli. Yes, yes, yes. I want to go to there for a big game and we'll experience that. Mm. <laughs> yeah, you can add that in. Listen, Miguel, it's a Friday night and you've been so good to give us your time. Um, we really, really appreciate it um, for coming on the Sports Babble and talking to us. Can't believe you did it, but fair play to you. Cheers. Um, and hopefully, like, down the line, after maybe the Champions League, we'll try to grab you a quick chat again if you if you have any time. Um but um, yeah, anyone that isn't isn't what uh, re- reading, sorry, Miguel stuff and in independent, and you're into your football, and I'm not trying to be an, ar- an arse lick here, even though I'm <laughs> going to come across as one. You're you're doing it wrong. Uh, I you need to be reading it. <laughs> yeah, and Miguel paid me five hundred pounds for that, so it was quite quite <laughs> handy. Um, but thanks again, Miguel, for coming on. Fo- and folks, you can catch all of our stuff um, on the Sports Babble. Brenton does all the social media because I keep breaking it. It's just Twitter at the Sports Babble, Instagram at the Sports Babble, and Facebook at the Sports Babble. And um, we'll chat to you again later in the week. Good luck. Bye.